everybody. Uh, my name is Katie Cole, and I'm really excited to welcome you back to our series on leading your team well. Uh, today is a topic that is something most of us are spending a lot of time talking about. It's a topic near and dear to my heart, so I am really excited to talk about it. It, it is the topic around hiring for diversity. Uh, we've been talking in the last couple uh, weeks of this six-week series about the fact that many churches, many industries everywhere are experiencing a lot of turnover. You're not alone if that's you. It's nothing to be uh, worried about. It, it's something to be addressed. But after COVID and, and sort of the last year and a half or so, many people are recalibrating their lives. They're thinking of making a change. We've got succession plans uh, still being implemented that were in place before. Some things have accelerated. Uh, you're probably pivoting a lot of your ministry and that requires staff change. So this is a huge piece that everyone is navigating. And if you missed any of the last two sessions, I want to really encourage you to go back and watch them. William and I talk about both of um, several different topics around that and uh, how you can position your church and really navigate those changes a lot more smoothly. But today we're going to talk about the opportunity that that gives us, which is uh, simultaneous to the pandemic, of course, we've gone through a year here in America where there has been a lot of civil and racial unrest. Um, I don't even know if I like to say it that way. I feel like there's been unrest for a long time, but somehow the lid got lifted. God sort of exposed what was happening that many people were aware of, but not everyone. And it has really gotten our attention. And we were all just talking before this I think most of us know this is a watershed moment, particularly for the Big C Church. And many of us need to deal with it on a micro level, but we're also talking about it on the more macro level. And when it comes to leading your team well, like many other aspects in your church, this is really an opportunity to move towards where God is calling you in terms of diversity for your church. So you never want to waste a good crisis. You certainly don't want to waste a good worldwide pandemic, and you don't ever want to waste something that's in the news every single day. So this is a great opportunity, and we want to spend the next hour speaking with our friend uh, Rufus Smith from Hope Church in Memphis. Uh, I'm going to let William Vanderbloom introduce him here in a second because they've known each other for a really long time, but uh, we're going to dive into that topic. How can you uh, strategically use this time to your advantage? How can you move your staffing diversity goals forward? But we want to have a real conversation about that. Uh, I want to chime in on some of the things I've been working on around females in leadership. I think that's the another side of this diversity issue, but there's many aspects to it. We're going to hit on some of them in an hour, but mostly we want to encourage you to continue diving into this topic we're going to have the chat open. So if you have a questions, please uh, put that in there and they'll, uh, Brooks will be feeding that to us so that we can address your real concerns in real time. And if you're watching this uh, as a recording later, uh, please feel free to reach out to any one of us. We care deeply about this topic. We're here on purpose to try and raise awareness and bring good dialogue and discussion and resources to you. Uh, but we want the conversation to continue. This is not a one hour thing. This is the beginning of hopefully many conversations. So please put your question in the chat uh, and reach out to us. And William, why don't you introduce our guest today? Sure, sure. Thanks, Katie and Rufus. Thanks for joining us. I've said for many, many years, uh, when I grow up, I hope I will be as cool as Rufus. Uh, he's just for a long time been somebody I've admired. And all the way back to uh, when I was a senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church here in Houston, uh, prior to my arrival, probably probably 10 years prior to my arrival, uh, First Presbyterian uh, had a had a splaunch. 
<laughs> had a had a group that lit that, launch is that what that yeah, was <laughs> i've never had to define that for anybody they know exactly what it is it's it's they had a splunch and a new church was birthed and uh then from there came another church and uh it, it really focused on mission in in the city uh itself and the pastor there was named rufus smith and I, uh, I was young and dumb enough to say, why don't we pulpit swap one time? And his poor church got the short end of that stick because they had to listen to me. Uh, and then my church, I didn't know that I had actually probably stepped in it a little bit, inviting this person who was part of something that maybe it started well or not or whatever. But it was one of the most healing, wonderful times for our church because Rufus was such a, a gentleman and and really delivered a great message. And that kicked off a little bit of a friendship. And then I noticed he left town and went <laughs> uh, went to Hope Presbyterian in Memphis, Tennessee. And I thought, that can't be right. He must have gone somewhere else because that is a white church, like completely <laughs> white church. And uh, then for Noah, he's uh, not the associate pastor, but maybe I I don't remember if it was the co-pastor, but then the senior pastor. And it's just this fabulous story of a church that, I, Rufus, you can correct me in a minute, I'll be quiet, but it, it was pretty white church in a neighborhood yes. that had quickly become not a white neighborhood. And yes. they took some very intentional steps a long time ago to say, we're going to fix this. And now Rufus has been gracious a couple different times with us over the course of the last year as we've opened our diversity practice at Vanderblum. And, and, and as I, I hate, it took things like Mr. Floyd's death and murder but uh, God's using that moment, I think, to to bring us all to a new sense of awareness. And, and Rufus, thanks so much for joining me for another conversation. Now, I may have butchered that whole story. I don't know. You correct me where I'm wrong, but uh, uh, thank you so much for being with us. No, thank you. And William, I appreciate your friendship across the years. As you know, those who are listening, William is self-deprecating and God has blessed him um, and from Houston days to now being uh, perhaps the most sought after person for talent in churches and nonprofits throughout the country. So God has his hand on you. And I'm, I'm appreciative for our friendship across the years. Thank you. Thank you. I wonder, Rufus, uh, if you wouldn't mind, I may have written revisionist history with the way Hope called you. and But could you walk us back to you're running a great church. You're running Yellowstone Academy, which is an amazing mission here in Houston. And and you get this call from a pretty white church. Like, how did that all happen? Tell us tell us the journey from them reaching out to you to where we are right now. Yeah. So when I joined the EPC, that's the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in 1998, um, uh, there were really uh, four men that... Um, made a beeline to me. They not only made me feel welcome, but wanted, because at that point, being an um, ethnic minority in a very white uh, denomination, um, there were just not uh, many opportunities for fellowship. It was not that people didn't want to. Uh, it was just awkward and uncomfortable. But four, four men uh, really reached out and befriended me. Uh, Sandy Wilson at Second Press in Memphis, Bob Benson in Alexandria, Louisiana at Grace Presbyterian, and then two other gentlemen, Dr. Richard Craig Strickland at Hope uh, Presbyterian and Dr. Eli Morris. 
And uh, so we had forged a friendship across the years, uh, me preaching them, um, them coming to preach for me, us doing uh, missional things together. So about 11 years into our friendship, I get a call from Dr. Strickland, uh, who asked, uh, at first he said, are you sitting down? And you, you don't like conversations like that. I said, no, I'm not sitting down, but should I? He said, yeah, you should sit down. And uh, he said, uh, I want you to pray about coming and uh, succeeding me here at Hope. And I said, um, man, I appreciate it. That's, that's quite an honor, but uh, things are going well here. Um, and thank you, but no. Um, and so, but he persisted. One thing led to another. Uh, we, just, as far as ethos was concerned, reaching out to marginalized persons, unchurched, dechurched, et cetera. Uh, so we, we enjoyed that kind of uh, philosophy together. But over the course of the next year, after praying and laboring, uh, I ended up coming to Hope. And, and as you said, uh, the, the church was in Cordova, Germantown, which is about, Cordova was about 26% uh, ethnic minority and uh, Germantown in the single digits, but the church was less than 1%. And so it did not reflect its one, three, five mile radius. And I would say that the leadership there, uh, led by Dr. Strickland, had really what I would call a holy discontent, mm -hmm. that the church did not reflect its immediate community, much less the wider community of Memphis, which as a large church, it was drawn regionally as well. And they understood that something uh, radical needed to be done. Uh, and so calling in an outsider and an African-American in a large established church, as you said, um, William, was quite radical. But uh, we believe spirit led. And now, 11 years later, I like to tell people a, um, a uh, great experiment became a grand experience. Wow. So and and the church is now pretty reflective of the community around it. Is that right? Absolutely. It, it is reflective in ethnicity as well as age. So when I came to Hope almost 11 years ago, 68% of the congregation was north of 40. Uh, and as I said, less than 1% uh, of any diversity. And, uh, and so now uh, the average age in Cordova at the time was, I think, uh, 39. Um, and so it has really, over these past uh, 10, 11 years, reflected more of the community. It, it looks precisely almost like Cordova, in fact. That's amazing. And I, I'll never forget, I was in Sociology 101 at Wake Forest, and the, the professor said, okay, if you don't remember anything else, just remember this. The primary objective of a large organization is to resist rapid change. <laughs> and I just thought of that as a pastor so many times. He's just dead, right? So it's, it, and, and Hope is a large, I think right now it might be the largest church in the denomination uh, by several different metrics. So this is not, yes. and, and size really doesn't matter if you're talking about diversity, whatever size church you're in. I think there's some lessons. It's just harder. The bigger something is, the, the more resistant it is to change. And that's right. what I think makes God's work at Hope so remarkable through you. So Katie, I'll, I'll kick it to you in a second, but I love, Rufus, that probably every, if, if I'm reading things right, there are a lot of people listening or passing this on to friends to listen to who are like, we need to do what Hope did, but we got no idea how. 
and and it is not. I need to go find a black pastor. Like, (laughs) so walk us through what you've been learning over 11 years and what what might be some immediate transferable principles for people that are listening, saying we got to do this, too. Well, um, I will um, I will start this way when we talk about uh, even at Hope with diversity, uh, as I have uh, said to Katie, we have experienced over 11 years that on four particular tracks. One, of course, is ethnicity. The other is age. The other is gender, uh, particularly having females serve in traditional male roles of authority. And then the fourth uh, for us has been a corporate person who has transitioned in their second half to church life. And so all of those uh, have uh, are, are points of diversity and change for us. But um, I would say for us, the most important thing is to make sure that um, you have the right scriptural motivations for these and not the cultural motivation, um, particularly when it comes to ethnicity and gender. Um, I'm, I am I am struck by and always have been by Acts 13, one through five, when the apostles and elders were gathered together in Antioch, uh, those on the call know the story, but the Holy Spirit said in the time of prayer and in, in their meeting, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called for them, right? Um, and when you look at the intentionality of the Spirit of God to set aside a Hellenistic Jew and then a Hebraic Jew, um, to reach out to Antioch, um, it, it helps us see uh, how intentional the Lord was in providing uh, ethnicity uh, and diversity to reach the widest possible swath of people. And so um, I, I think that is uh, the most important principle for me. It's undergirded and it tests all your motivations right. Um, not just cultural, but are they scriptural? Um, and, and when you look at the intentionality of the Spirit of God uh, from Pentecost on, I think churches keep their eye on that ball. We pretty much have the biblical blueprint that's already set. That's great. Katie, let me kick it to you. I've been hogging the mic. No, it's so good. Well, Rufus, I'm wondering if you could explain, you sort of dropped this concept of the one, three, five mile radius. And I think when it comes to this topic, uh, there are sort of these theoretical and abstract ideas about it, but that's really a concept that helps bring it down to some actual numbers. So I'm from the multi-site world. We talk about the radius all the time in terms of who we're reaching and where our campus strategy is going. But for those people who aren't familiar with that, just give a little insight into what you're talking about and how the reports that you can get on your community can really give you some great information to start. Absolutely. Um, and so, um, you know, with mobility in America and the church world, um, um, churches have increasingly become commuter churches versus community churches. And when, when you become a commuter church versus a community church, um, then you're really not reflecting the values of people within that one or three, five mile radius. And we, we, we that way because it does force you to, be, to look at your community, you know, where you are starting. And again, the principle 
of um, Acts 1-8 is you're going to be receive power and you're going to be witnesses to me first in Jerusalem, Judea. That's the home base. And so um, when you start looking at that and, and politizing and perfecting ministry in the home base, then you can branch out. But there's, there's so many people that are within the one, three, five mile radius who need the gospel um, that we uh, oftentimes neglected. I, I'll give you an example. For example, um, I was at a meeting once um, in a North Memphis. It would be an under-resourced part of town and was talking about uh, things in our ministry that we wanted to do to help. And, um, you know, we're going to have a series of six meetings and form a team and so forth and so on. And a young lady um, stood up at the end of the meeting, very respectful, did, did not mean to uh, be hostile, and said, Pastor Smith, I, I appreciate what, what Hope is doing and what you want to do and, and your community development center out here. But can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She said, where do you live? I said, I live in Cordova. And she said, I don't mean no disrespect, but, but that is part of the problem. This is important work for you. I, I, I believe that but it's not urgent and you're not proximate to the pain. She didn't say that, but that's basically what she was saying. And so I think when we look at our one, three, five mile radius, the community that God planted us in, we have to make sure that we're doing our due diligence right there in the Jerusalem Judea uh, section first, and then we can branch out from the home base to Samaria uh, obviously, which is an unfamiliar, uncomfortable place uh, than the utmost parts of the world, which is unknown, unconquered space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there actually, for those of you that are looking at this maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, there are some reports you can get online of uh, your actual diversity ratio. So the four things that, well, other than the, than the business people, the three things that you could really get and find out the nationalities. Because when you're talking about diversity, it really depends on where in the country, right? Or even where in your state or county. So I'm in South Florida. Diversity has a totally different application than when I did ministry in Seattle, Washington. So all had the need to really make sure we were reflecting our community, but the kinds of people we were connecting with and the strategies to reach different sorts of cultural backgrounds were very different. I, I agree more, Katie. I, I learned a huge lesson early on in search when uh, Eric Geiger hired me to find his replacement at his church at Christ Fellowship in South Miami. And he was like, um, we need it a Latino because we have three white guys running this church and the neighborhood's 12% white. So that doesn't work. So, uh, I just thought, okay, we need a Latino. So what he's like, no, 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 no. Like there's so many micro contexts within yeah. South Florida. You can't bring me this kind of person cause they won't get along with this kind of Latino and this kind <laughs> of Latino. And like you, it, it boiled down to, I need you to find a Cuban pastor who's not charismatic, but a great preacher, which was arguably one of the hardest Hard searches. Ever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I even Googled, how do I find a Cuban pastor? And I got all these stories of people floating on rafts and it was not the best option. But, uh, yeah, in, in Florida, we like to say even our diversity is diverse. <laughs> it's amazing. And it set me down a road of learning the Hispanic Latino market, which is so different. Like if you're in Western Michigan, yeah, you need a Latino pastor, but it needs to be someone from an agrarian 
upbringing or an agrarian part of the Latino community. Very, very different than the very well-to-do uh, third-generation Latinos that are at Christ Fellowship who don't speak Spanish unless they're talking to their abuela. So it's like a whole, di- like like understanding the micro context uh, is what, what I think Hope got so right. I, I put a link up. I think Brooks is going to send it out. Rufus did a podcast with, with me, gosh, I guess last summer. And, and our other guest was Jimmy Rollins, who was taking his dad's church, which was all black and trying to make it reflect the community, which was not all black. And it's like the reverse and it get really tactile. I think it might be a helpful, helpful resource to people out there. I, I would just add one one other piece to this before, Katie, you move us along. Um, when we do succession work, which is within helping churches find pastors, that's like our micro niche that we have been studying a long time. We're starting to ask the question, what does that one, three, five mile radius look like 20 years from now? Because if you're looking for it's it's not just now, like all these exurbias and suburbias of white America where we all ran to 20 and 30 years ago, they're all changing. And and smart churches are not just looking at the right now, but they're looking at the what's coming and, and making adjustments. I think one thing to throw into that is we've got two other components that we've not looked at um, very much before, in my opinion, in the in the church conversations about that. One is that, especially post-pandemic, almost all of our churches have now a global presence because we have online campuses. Now, a lot of churches are shutting that down and kind of going back to what was, but many are investing in that more than ever. And so when you think of that one, three, five mile radius, it has a completely different dialogue when you're talking about this sort of global presence or internet-based community that you're building. So that would be the first thing. And how you staff that team is very strategic. The second is most, uh, in my experience, most population uh, sort of uh, predictive indexes don't take into account enough biracial marriages and biracial children. And so when you're looking 10, 20, 30 years forward, it's not that all these pockets grow and stay pockets. That intermingling is something that's been hard for people to quantify. And I think many of us are seeing that in our communities now, and it doesn't fit our predetermined buckets that we like to put people in. And like 10 or 15 years ago when we were first starting multi-site, it was very revolutionary to have like the Spanish speaking campuses where all those different countries from Latin America actually fought each other, (laughs) you know, or you had this kind, you know, you'd have the old person campus or the young adult campus. And really it was just another form of segregation within the walls of the same church. And we're seeing a lot of those things really not make the turn in the last five years. We're really looking for integration. So our community is becoming more integrated. And so therefore our ministries um, need to actually think about integrating those pieces more and more over time uh, so that we're reflected. But yes, looking forward, but making sure we're keeping that in mind. Uh, Rufus, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about two sides of this conversation that when it comes to leading staff, I think are really critical. And uh, and there aren't a lot of standards for us in the church world to navigate this. The first is what uh, what was it like for you as one of the only minorities on your new church staff to walk into that environment? What was the experience for you? Because I think for those of us who have been in FOD, which in the in the minority world stands for first, other, or different. So if you're a first, other, or different out there, you will understand some of these dynamics. When you're the first one to go, when you're different than everyone else, when you're kind of feel like an other, whatever that is, you're a different age, you're a different gender, a different race, there's an experience that you carry into your leadership 
that impacts you, your onboarding experience is different than everybody else's. And I loved how you talked about these four men welcoming you and wanting you because that's the second half of my conversation is what can we do as church teams to adjust our cultures? What are the practices that made the biggest difference to you? What were the things you experienced from people that all of us can be doing as we move forward in this uh, initiative? Wow. Um, I appreciate that, uh, Katie. Um, Fortunately, um, being in multi-ethnic ministry for almost 12 years in Houston, when I got to Hope, um, uh, made the path easier for me. Um, so I'll speak from two, two, two points of view. Um, it, people don't mean to do it. It's just, it's unconscious, it's subliminal. Um, but when I was at this particular meeting in 1998 in Corpus Christi, uh, everyone had come with their particular teams. Um, and when, when, when I finished all the ordination and so forth and sat down, my son and I, um, it, it was such an awkward moment. I didn't even ask my wife to come with me, which I don't, I rarely do, because it was, I knew it was going to be uh, awkward and different. Um, but my son came with me. Um, but, but, but people just went to their particular flocks. I mean, here, here was this African-American here, and uh, it was lunchtime, and nobody came over. Um, now, for me as a minority, it would have been just the opposite. Like you said, because you're in that position, if I had seen someone who had a um, um, intellectual or physical disability, if I had seen someone who was just different in any way, I would have gone over to them because I know what that feels like. And that's why these four men. When I'm at a when I'm at a conference of all white pastors, it's me and the one black guy that always find each other and have lunch together. <laughs> That's right. Yes, exactly. And so and so people don't mean to do it. Um, and so if, if you're moving in this direction, whether it's gender or age or ethnicity or um, you know the 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 business guy who now comes into the church, um, you have to go the extra mile in uh, preparing people. You have to prepare the staff. Uh, you have to prepare the person coming in. Um, and, you know, we, what we've learned over, over time, you have to prepare the lay leaders, you know, in our church in Presbyterian with sessions. You have to have all of these kinds of conversation. It's just going the extra mile because we take things for granted when birds of a feather flock together. And so um, you thinking through um, how that's going to happen. I played baseball, for example, and um, I played shortstop. And one day I, I uh, took the um, glove of one of our left-handed outfielders and was just playing around and uh, fielding ground balls at shortstop with a left-handed glove. You, you, you can imagine I made a lot of errors, right? Uh, it was just awkward. I just could not get it right. Uh, and so what I, I tell people that, that story because when you are left-handed in a right-handed world or when you are one of the different ones, um, if you learn to walk in their shoes, learn to understand this is a left-hander in a right-handed world, um, then you can decrease the errors that you will make. And when godly people get together and think through it, first, they just have to be challenged. How do we go the extra mile 
uh, with our staff, with this particular person, and with the people that they're going to be leading, even key leaders, it it does smooth out the process. Mm-hmm. Rufus, I'm thinking, uh, you know, we, church calls us and says, we need a new pastor. Okay, fine. We go in and what do you need? Well, we need more young people around here, right? That's what every church says. Okay, fine. So <laughs> I learned over the years to ask a bunch of questions to see if they're ready for the changes that will be necessary to get those young people there. And, exactly. and you sometimes they get a little embarrassed and like, you know, we really don't do change very well. Maybe we don't need. It. So uh, now that we've opened this diversity practice, one of the reasons we opened a diversity practice, people are like, are you doing things besides search? Well, sort of, because people call us and say, I need a black person on my staff or I need a Latino or I need, and they're not ready. Like right. they're not ready. And, and so I'm wondering what are some keys that you would, you would pass on to people who are listening today or will listen in the future to how do you get ready for your first hire of diversity? What can you do for your staff to get them ready? And, and what tangible steps can a staff take to make that onboarding great? Cause it, if you if you onboard and it doesn't go well, it's it's really hard to undo. So it, it is hard to undo and it makes it less likely that you would want to do it again um, because you will kind of say we tried that and it didn't work. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I, I again, let me <clears throat> at the risk of being redundant, <clears throat> say the first thing is, why do you want uh, mm. a minority in this position? Is it is it biblical? Is it not? I mean, are you really looking at um, I see this in the through the lens of an application of First Corinthians chapter nine. If we're trying to reach our community um, and uh, as Paul says, I to the weak, I become weak to the strong, I become strong, so forth and so on. I become all things to all men that I might win some clue. And this I do for the sake of the gospel. And mm. so if that's my motivation, uh, and, 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 and I, I, we're asking ourselves, why are we doing this? Uh, then I think that's half the battle. Then it's, then what do we do to help on board? Uh, we, we use an instrument, an assessment. There are many assessment tools out there, but again, when God, the people start thinking they will find these tools or get people who, who can help them uh, we use an assessment too. It's not a Christian too, but uh, it does help a team uncover uh, implicit bias. And, you know, that's a politically charged word uh, today. But it's amazing when you get your team to take such an assessment, but it does get at the heart of, of issues. And then you can uncover, now I'm, I'm unconsciously biased here. I have a blind spot here. Um, and so when you are thinking and understanding that this is biblical, why am I doing this? Am I trying to really do it to win those people within the, my concentric circle of contact in, in the church world, 135 radius? And are we prepared to do that? Do we have capacity to do that? Whether we fall short and then uh, assessing those, those um, biases that we may have. And, and for, for example, we found even age-wise that uh, the same type of biases uh, that you find in ethnicity or others, it's you may not be as ready for uh, putting someone younger or hiring someone younger at a strategic place as you think. So you've got to do that groundwork. 
Mm-hmm. So I just came from uh, these poor two that are tolerating me on the panel. I ran in at the last minute to get on this call because I've been at Exponential. Uh, they had a little, a really small gathering that a group of people they invited together to listen to new ideas from people that I, we had one of the speakers was 17, uh, one of them was 20. And it was hilarious to see. I looked at my left and looked at my right, and it was a bunch of old white guys sitting together. <laughs> like, <laughs> now I'm the old guy. So the age piece is not to be overlooked. Uh, yeah. So, so helpful. I'm really thankful, Rufus, that you're bringing in the topic of using theology as the driving vision. I know sometimes that sounds like kind of an obvious answer, but I found uh, on the topic of females in leadership, it obviously there's more theological debate around what scripture actually says about that. And the case I've tried to make is regardless of where you land on the theological spectrum on this issue, you have to lead with scripture because the people who are resisting change are doing what they think is right. Katie, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to interrupt you because I don't think that's what's actually happening. I I looked yesterday. Don't uh, be alarmed, Rufus. We disagree on almost everything. (laughs) I I just don't think it's what's happening. You know, yesterday, I guess the news started to circulate that Rick Warren had ordained some women. And like every bit, like a Twitter sphere went crazy. I didn't hear one point of theology raised. Yeah, it, it was chauvinism. It was emotive. And I didn't hear solid arguments based in the scriptures about why it should be this way or that way. I just heard people pulling for whatever position they think they have based in some emotive thing. So yeah, I don't know how you move past yeah, that. You're actually, you're making my point for me, because um, the challenge is that we actually want scripture to lead us, but so many times it isn't what's leading us. And so as spiritual leaders, it's really important we make a theological case because it's hard to know. We all grew up with different experiences, different biases. We were taught certain things. We Our personality leans one way or another naturally. And we tend to take those beliefs and systems and apply them to scripture rather than using scripture to inform our viewpoints on things. And so what I've seen is that when pastors make a strong theological case for whatever the diversity topic or all of the diversity topics that they're they're wanting to uh, initiate, Bible-believing believers will follow it, but they won't follow it because your opinion doesn't match mine or because I'm just going to turn my Bible theology and every Bible study I've been in since I was 12 over and believe you instead. You have to convince me with scripture. And especially the issue of women is really a topic that you can make a biblical case for many different viewpoints on it. What I need to know is what you're counting on is your interpretation of scripture. And if it's a big enough issue for me, it might make me leave, but chances are I can agree with your perspective on scripture. And so when uh, I find that that's a very helpful place to start, the other piece is when you are dealing with bias and some of the things, William, you were just talking about, our emotions come in, my own experience and hurt, um, whatever that experience is. Sometimes there's a sense that white people have been hurt in this process as much as uh, non-white people. So there's all these experiences. But at the end of the day, if we can be unified on the vision of it and what we're moving towards, it makes the action steps much easier. And it allows people to challenge themselves. The Holy Spirit can challenge them internally, which is the most effective way to take on bias is when I myself feel convicted about it 
based on what I hear from other people, not because someone challenged me head on. So I just wanted to say that leading with that is not below you, that you can't assume people agree with your theologies because senior pastor, you've been thinking it for the 20 years since you founded the church. People need to actually hear the biblical case. And Rufus, you rattled off some really wonderful examples in scripture about racial diversity, but I have been a part of many churches who have never talked about race one time. And we've gone through the entire book of Acts multiple times. We've gone through the entire New Testament, all the gospels, and we learned a lot of great lessons. We just never looked at it with that lens. And so you probably have people in your church who could quote scriptures all day long and have never thought about this aspect of the context of this epistle or this parable. And so your job as the leader is to really bring that up in a fresh way and speak to people. Um, You'll get to go deep (laughs) for all of your people as they've been asking for you for 20 years um, and really challenge them in that way. Um, So Rufus, I would love to know um, sort of in your mind, the, kind of over the lifetime of you leading in a place where you are not the majority, um, sort of the weight on that personally. I want to speak mostly to my uh, brothers and sisters who are one of those first or only people, because uh, it requires a certain level of faith. It is a calling. It is easier to go to a place where you get all the jokes and they get you and your wife fits in. And, you know, it's it is just easier. And I get that. (laughs) Like there are there are spaces where I could lead that would be much less controversial. It sounds delightful. (laughs) I'll go on vacation to do that. So talk about stewarding an entire career in ministry where God has called you to be on the front lines of this. And so much of that is a personal hit and a personal weight that almost no one around you understands. Are there practices, are there spiritual habits, are there disciplines that you've found important for you to be more um, on the, I call it, in the in the world of women, we call it the glass cliff. Women tend to take on harder, more challenging leadership uh, opportunities because they're the only ones that are given them, but it costs us a lot more. So self-care becomes a topic, not because we need more self-care, but our jobs tend to be much harder than our peers. And so we steward our leadership over the marathon of ministry calling different. What are some of your practices and what are some ways that churches can um, be more sensitive to that or make space for the weight of this topic on people who are going first? Um, my mentor, Dr. A. Lewis Patterson Jr., told me 30 years ago, uh, based on um, his understanding of scripture, that the truest thing about you is not what you feel and not what others say about you, but what God thinks about you. And he unpacked that, you know, uh, biblically. And uh, later on, I came to describe that as spiritual self-esteem, not just natural self-esteem, which is pretty much based on achievements, but spiritual self-esteem, which is based on grace and calling. None of us deserve the goodness God has given to us. But when I really understand that the truest thing about me is what God says and not how I feel and not what others think, then when I come into a role like this, um, I'm not as needy for approbation um, or affirmation. And, I, and so one of the things that, that um, and I know some of you can speak to this, uh, certainly you, Katie, with your experience, 
um, you can have two or three candidates that are equal on all aspects. The dividing line for me is when I have the conversation with them. Again, whether that's in business or age or ethnicity, um, uh, the bottom line is, are you prepared to be a pioneer and a pace setter? That means you're going to bear an unusual cross and you're not going to get all of the affirmation that you deserve. And that separates um, who I would hire uh, because if you want to come into an organization that is ready-made, uh, that's already tailored, um, then this is not the place for you. We're not perfect. We'll never be perfect. You have to have the idea of a pioneer and uh, you're a pace setting. <clears throat> and so if you are not prepared to bear that cross that nobody else can bear but you, then this is not the place for you. And that separates you know, people who are equally qualified um, because of that, what I believe is that spiritual self-esteem uh, and that lack of needing uh, affirmation all the time, because you're not going to get it. Hey, Rufus, I'll put you in the hot seat for a second. Uh, I'm from deep in the woods of Western North Carolina. Like, if you're old enough to remember the film Deliverance, like, that's where I grew yes. up, right? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> which is a whole another webinar on why you shouldn't just hire within the family because that doesn't end well. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we'll save that for another day, Katie. But I'm, I'm wondering, like you go to, uh, is it Cherokee County, Georgia, North Georgia, where there's literally a 100% white population, okay? So when the church from whatever that county is calls me and says, we need to hire for diversity, would you tell them to hire for diversity? No. Okay. Okay. Not, not, not if it's ethnic diversity. Yeah. No ethnic diversity. They, yeah, we, yeah. we need to get on, on board with the rest of the world. We need to, you just say no. No, I, I would say no. It's, it's not possible. You know, when you look at your demographics now, does that mean that you uh, should not reach out to Samaria? No. And I'm not even talking about the remotest parts of the earth. I mean, churches have done a fairly good job of doing globally what we won't do locally. But I'm saying, yes, uh, if your one, three, five mile radius is rural, if it's, you know, all of what you just described, then make disciples right where you are. That's what God has called you. On the other hand, um, where is your Samaria? It may be 20 miles away. That's good. That's very good. I'd like to add, though, that uh, diversity isn't only about race. And I think this is where that one, three, five mile study or even just a community study in a rural area, because sometimes that one, three, five isn't, doesn't translate to rural areas. So your local, whatever your local community. And, and one of the ways we talk about that in church uh, growth strategy is when people think of how far they'll drive somewhere, um, you take that distance. So people will drive 45 minutes to go to the grocery store, or to Walmart or a movie. Then you've got a 45 minute drive radius. If it's an hour and they won't go, then you know that 45 minute is the thing. If they'll, in urban areas, we tend to keep it a 20 mile radius because that's about how far people want to drive to the Walgreens or the, or the more convenient thing. Well, there, are so parts of Texas, there are parts of Texas that need a five hour yeah. radius. <laughs> There's a five hour radius here for sure. <laughs> 
So you can take that demographic and we are going to um, find the link. I don't have it at my fingertips, but we'll look it up and make sure we post it um, in with this webinar um, afterwards. But uh, unless someone out there watching knows it, then please uh, send the link into the chat so we can give it to everybody else. But uh, you can look at that drive radius and that's where things like gender, age and socioeconomic uh, really pay an important piece in that because if your entire elder board are the 10 richest people in your 45 minute drive range, you might not be getting decisions that really are helping your entire community. Or if you're locked into one economic level, or if it's all men, that's where we start to see really our leadership decisions break down because we're missing perspective. So Absolutely. I would, I agree that, that, uh, race might not be the diversity issue, but I have yet to work with a church that doesn't have a diversity issue they need to tackle. <clears throat> that, that's a great point. Uh, one of the things that we discovered when we did demographical studies and we refreshed, you know, refresh it every few years, we've done two at Hope, um, was that 18% uh, of our people in two zip codes um, were dealing with directly or indirectly uh, families with developmental disabilities. Mm. Um, and that allowed us to then look at, um, you know, how are we trying to reach this particular group? And uh, then you discover some interesting things, that, you know, trying to be a church, reaching out to the unchurched, the church, or today, what are they, nuns and dons? Um, you, you realize that 80% um, of people who live with someone um, with a uh, dis developmental disability, they don't go to church. Mm -hmm. It's our market. Yeah. Um, and 70% of them divorced. Yeah. It's, it's just, that's our market. Yeah. They're within our five mile radius. Yeah. Um, and so we ended up enhancing, adding staff, enhancing and uh, studying people who were ahead of us in this ministry uh, in order to, um, minister to them and an elder uh, separate and apart, like an elder of children, an elder of students, we have an elder of, you know, family with developmental disabilities, as you said, Katie, to keep us conscious and to represent an underrepresentation in our leadership. And so, you know, those, those principles, I'm just saying amen to what you just said. So, and one of the things you're hitting on are these multi-dimensions. I do know that Glue, Vin, uh, William, are you connected in with Glue formally at all? Not formally, but I know Scott well, yes. Yeah, we'll put the link in the chat, but um, this is a great place to start. It's not, I don't think that they do that specific 135 that we were talking about earlier, but this is a great resource to the church. It's sort of um, taken on these um, sort of geographical analytics. It's something every church should at least be looking at and assessing um, when or how to engage this kind of information. Um, and then some of the population studies, like I said, will add some um, trustworthy links uh, with that. And, and I think, Katie, people ask me all the time what's going to happen now that the pandemic's kind of hitting the rear view of our of our site, right? And one of the things that I'm already seeing, you know, we called, the, we said there's going to be more turnover than ever. Okay, fine. I think there will be um, some churches, a very few, that will carry their online presence to become sort of a top 40 church that people dial into from wherever they are across the... I, I'm just picking that because I'm old enough to know who Casey Kasem is and top 40, but I, you know, like that's going to happen. But where the real ball game is going to change 
is the pastor for the next 20 years that will produce and, and be effective is the one who will get to know their direct radius better than anybody. Like, here's what the word of God says. Used to be Billy Graham said, I used to sit down with the Bible and a newspaper. Okay. Well, now it's like the Bible and the most local granular Google news you can find for your zip. Here's what happened in our zip code this week. And here's what God's word says, but that cannot be globalized. You know, if you're a pastor and you're in a neighborhood, you're the only pastor with a call to that neighborhood in that block. And I think if you get to know the pain, how's the divorce rate in your zip code compared to the zip codes around you? Like maybe you need to focus on that. To me, that's what uh, the Internet will never replace. Right. The, the localized priestly gifts. And maybe I'm wrong, Rufus, you're on the front lines. If I'm, I'm just the consultant shooting in the breeze, you know. No, man, I, I was about to tell you to say it again. Yeah, and the black people, they would say, say it again. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> that is right on. I, in fact, I had a, a national consultant call to say, man, we know that your numbers are just, you're reaching people all over the world. That, that meant quite frankly, very little to me because I can't help those folks. Um, I'm, I'm not going to predicate and, and use resources toward that. Um, I want those folks to find a local Bible-believing church where Jesus is exalted, the word of God is explained. Uh, if we can help lead them there, that's fine. But you're exactly right. Majoring on your community um, is going to make all the difference in the world. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not decrying those who um, who think differently, uh, but I concur with what you just said, local first. I think you also raised the issue that um, we've fallen, the bigger church community and sometimes falls into this idea that there are felt needs in the community. And we'll like, every once in a while, we'll do a felt need sermon series. And I would just like to challenge, there aren't felt needs, there are just needs. <laughs> and every need is really an invitation to tell me how God can help me with my actual need. And so I think categorizing those or even having some shame associated with having needs is really missing what God's almost best um, kindling to motivate people to search for him is. It's why most churches are seeing upticks in attendance right now because people have gone through one of the hardest years of their life and they have all sorts of needs and they're hoping the church might have some answers. And so the more we can orient towards that, I think God has really given us a a rare opportunity where he just demanded more of everyone around us than has ever been demanded before. And their normal um, resources and wit and experience and education and money aren't enough. No one has enough right now. And God is the only one who has enough. And if we don't connect the dots for people, they're going to miss it. And that's that's our opportunity. Well, and it's not just a burden, Katie. It's 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 a liberation. Uh, my pastor of our church has told me, I don't know if people are going to come back to church. William, when this is all over, I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course, they can. Well, I can't preach like Matt Chandler. And I can't preach like Stephen Furtick. And they can watch. They figured out now. They can watch it all online. I'm like, dude, they're not coming for content anymore. Content's ubiquitous. <laughs> they're coming for a connection. They're coming for you being the pastor of their neighborhood. And, and that should liberate you from trying to be the best preacher or copy the strategy of this, that, or the other. I, I think it's, it's a freeing moment for a lot of people. Unless the only thing you think you're good at is preaching, <laughs> then it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> That's oh. a great perspective. I, I, I appreciate that. Can I, can I put both of you on a hot seat? 
have at it. All right. Um, so if a, how do you help a church navigate any distinctions, uh, a distinction, if any, between saying that corporate America is ahead of the church when it comes to all of these diversity issues? I mean, it, you know, they they were first in terms of diversity uh, or the military with ethnicity, with uh, women, with um, uh, age, with, you know, putting younger people in very strategic positions and training them and, and so forth and so on. Um, uh, how do you answer them to say that uh, the world is ahead of the church or uh, the church has to resist not being worldly? Because I get a lot of that uh, cultural versus scriptural. Yeah, well, we don't want to do it just because. Uh, how do you answer churches like that? Well, well what you're saying, uh, the church is really good at raising the flag at sunset. <laughs> 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 Sometimes we're just behind, you know, and and the the whole the way we've always done it, you know, those seven last words of the church that it I think changed sometimes comes harder for the church than in other places. And I think this is one area and, I, and I'll venture out on a limb, which is easy for me to do as a white male. Right. Uh, so if I, if I step on toes, I'm sorry. But I think the church like pastor, if you think people can come to church for your sermon, you are sorely mistaken. Like mm -hmm. it, it, maybe you're a good preacher, but the reason people keep coming back to church and the reason they will return to in-person church, sorry, friend, Carrie Newhoff. Uh, but the reason they will come back is because of the relationship with other people. Like whether it's Baptists that invented Sunday school, that's kept us ahead of Europe, frankly. That's been a great gift is that we have a, a community-based small groups. Like that's the glue of the church. And, and the flip side of that is we have been glued together with people like us for a long, long time. And I think that may have uh, s slowed our ability to have open eyes and to change in this regard. That would be my answer that, you know, we're not real good at change on some things. We do have, this is the way we've always done it. But on the other hand, it's the, the very heartbeat of church is community. And if we've been around people like us for a long time, it just uh, makes it that much more difficult. I see. But I actually really appreciate people who resist change in the church, because I think as as Christians who have been studying our Bible and we know the slippery slopes that exist, it's very clear scripturally. We know that it's easy to take steps of compliance, um, that I, I value the motivation of most people who are resistant to leave their orthodoxy that they've grown up with and that they think about. I, I worry about the church, um, like in, in the context we're talking, who are like, and now we're going to hire all these people, or now we're going to put women on a platform. Or I'm like, you can't flip that in a week. If, you're, if your body follows you by one announcement at a volunteer leader rally night, I worry about the discipleship of your church. No Christian should flip theology because someone said it one day. And yeah. so if you face resistance in change leadership around theological issues, that means you have people who are taking their theology seriously. That is such a great sign of a healthy church. But it comes back to why you have to make a theological case. You have to help them see in scripture what they haven't been able to see yet. And when you do that, yeah, you're making a way for all these other people and things will get better for the church, but you're discipling 
a mature believer. And that is one of the things that I think the church has failed at more than anything in the last 30 years is continuing to disciple mature and leading Christians. Uh, you see it because they leave to go start their own churches or they start their own nonprofits or they, they begin whatever. It, we, uh, we don't have a next step. We double down in evangelism and go too light in leadership, spiritual leadership development. Say so, it again. Is that what I'm supposed to say, Rufus? Say it again. Don't. Say it again. <laughs> say, it again. <laughs> say it again. That's so good. And, and I think, I know we're rounding out our time, but I think that we're ending at a really brilliant place. I, in my seat, I worry, I was just with all these people with kingdom ventures for the gospel. Like, what are we going to, amazing thoughts about underground churches and micro churches and all these. And the thing that kept coming to my mind, and I finally said it out loud and everybody said, you know, that we're all thinking the same thing. There is a, a theological crisis in the church mm-hmm. in America. I'm not saying there's bad theology. We just don't have consistent theology. It's completely schizophrenic. And it, and it is the backside of the people that taught me ministry that, you know, the Rick Warrens and the Bill Hybels and the guys who said, look, we need to be growing. And, and growth uh, has, I think, trumped theology in a way that that is going to lead to some real inconsistencies going forward. So I think centering the conversation around race in theology is, Rufus, that's the most brilliant thing you've brought to the table. I hope it's where we can end and stay. Frankly, part of the reason you're in the EPC and not the main line is, I would think, straight line back to the 60s when my friends that raised me in the Presbyterian Church took on civil rights as a cause unto itself Right. rather than a scripturally mandated uh, movement. And, and it just led us astray on any number of other issues that, that you know, kind of disintegrated the denomination. So. And, I, and I know our time is gone, but I, and I, I've had this conversation with several white men who feel uh, that they're really not uh, at this hour uh, in a position to lead. But let me, let me just say this. Um, it's fascinating to me that Jesus called Jewish men to evangelize a Gentile world. Now they had their troubles and tensions you know, with the inclusion, but it's amazing that he used them. And so I just say to people, if you love Jesus, um, then you are definitely able to communicate the gospel in word and deed. Now, are you gonna have to um, jettison some of your rigidity when it comes to Judaistic practices and so forth. It's not a Jewish church, a Gentile church. You're going to have to uh, definitely create a, another church, a third way, but you are not disqualified. And I know that happens in my congregation. I mean, what I don't feel adequate. Um, and just I just want to remind you that God used Jewish people to reach a Gentile world. They didn't do it perfectly. But um, it does not matter your ethnicity or your age or your gender. Um, it only matters that you are centered in Christ and want to be all things to all men that you might win some for the sake of the gospel. And now y'all know why when I grow up, I want to be like Rufus. You need a new class of friends, man. You're thinking too low. <laughs> oh, man, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us. And I'm, I'm learning every time I'm around you, I learn something. It's so helpful. Well, thank you, Katie. I appreciate you. And I'll be in touch with you after this. I have an uh, a issue I'd like you to help me with. 
Good. Well, I would be honored. Thank you for spending this time. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. We will be back in two weeks with another part of our series on leading your church team well. And thanks, William. Always great to partner with you. And we will be back again in a couple weeks. Thanks, everybody.